Well, good morning, New City, and thanks so much for choosing to spend some of your weekend here with us. Um, as I begin, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word substitute, uh, but typically it is a lesser version of the thing that it's substituting for. So, for example, when you were a kid and you would go to school and you would have a substitute teacher, right? And maybe not necessarily the teacher wasn't like as qualified as the other teachers, but it's not the one that's normally there. So you kind of figured we're not going to pay attention. We're going to be crazy. Like it's going to be a day that we don't learn as much, right? Or if you think of a substitute player, right? A player who comes off the bench to, to give the starters a rest. They're a substitute because they're not as good as the people who are starting. Uh, or maybe think of it this way. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a season where Christina did the, uh, the grocery pickup thing where they would like do your groceries and bring it to your front door. And uh, there was a couple of frustrations she had with that. One of those was that they would sometimes substitute your product with something else. And sometimes they would substitute it because they were out and it was a good decision and you got like a bigger or better thing than what you were supposed to get, or it was worse. And so you would have times where you would ask for hamburger buns and they'd give you hot dog buns. Or I was reading this morning, you know, people talking about like I needed, I asked for eight tubes of toothpaste and they gave me eight electrical toothbrushes for kids. And they're like, I have no kids. Or someone was saying um, that they ordered peaches and they substituted peaches for peach shampoo, right? Like that's not at all what they actually wanted. Uh, in fact, Christina said one of the things uh, that she noticed whenever she would place a grocery order, I guess it would tell you the name of the person who was picking up your groceries. And she said, I knew that if it, if it was a man getting my groceries, they would get it wrong. She, every time she said they got it wrong, there would be some sort of problem. Now, I say that because for us, a substitute is typically lesser than the real thing or the thing that it is substituting for. Interestingly, in Scripture, you kind of have this idea flipped on its head. Oftentimes in Scripture, the, the substitute or when something is substituted, the substitute is actually better than the thing that it is replacing. So, for example, in the Old Testament, you had the ancient people, the Israelites. They would have a high priest who was the mediator between God and the people for their sins. He would stand in the place in the gap. He would be the substitute for the people. You would also have something like the atonement lamb. So, uh, once a day, on the day of atonement, you would, have a, you would sacrifice, the high priest would sacrifice a lamb as a substitute for the people. Uh, and when this lamb shed its blood, it would take, it would die and take the sins of the people on its behalf. It would be a substitute for the people. Or in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, you have Isaiah the prophet talking about this suffering servant who was one day to come. And he says that this suffering servant would take the place of people and that our sin would be placed and would be laid on him, that he would be our substitute. And of course, if you're familiar with the story of the scriptures, there is a famous substitute or atonement that happens in the gospels as well. Right? And that's what is happening here. These substitutes are actually standing in the place for good reasons for other people. And so today, as we continue along in the book of Genesis, we are going to read about another famous substitute that God provides in an even better way to take the place of something else. And so if you have a Bible, would you join me in Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter 22. Today, we are looking at one of the most well-known stories in the life of Abraham, not only in the life of Abraham, but in the whole book of Genesis. Genesis, and not even just in the whole book of Genesis, but in the entire Bible. We are looking at a story that is really well known, and I force this is always a favorite of mine because then we get to see some of the things that are confusing or some of the things that we miss in stories that might be familiar to us. And so uh, if you were here last week, again, we've been in the story of Abraham. God calls Abraham out, says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and out of you or through you, somehow, some way, all of the nations in the world will be blessed. 
And so we, we walk this story with Abraham of infertility, and then they have a kid named Ishmael, but, but not in good circumstances. And then finally, he's promised Isaac. So God, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are going to actually have their own son named Isaac. And if you were there last week, we saw Isaac finally is born, and things are looking pretty good. The promised heir is here, and, but, but, but we're going to run into an issue of what God then asks Abraham to do with this long-awaited son named Isaac. And so here's what it says, chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am. He answered. So again, this is sometime after the birth of Isaac. Uh, he has this uh, peace treaty that he goes with this man named Abimelech in the land that he is staying in the land of the Canaanites. After all these things take place, he's now going to test Abraham and he's going to test him as we see with Isaac. Now, it's important for us to understand that the scriptures here tell us that Abraham is about to be tested. Abraham does not know that, right? We know something that Abraham does not. Abraham is not told this is going to be a test. He just knows that God is asking him to do something. But this test is going to show or to ask Abraham or to have Abraham reveal where his faith or his trust really lies, Again, Genesis chapter 21, at the end of chapter 21, it ends with Abraham calling God the everlasting or the enduring God. And now this everlasting, this faithful, this enduring God is going to test Abraham. Now, it is worth knowing from, for our, from our perspective uh, that every time, whenever God allows or brings a test to someone in scripture, it isn't for God's benefit. It is always for the person that is being tested, right? So, so God is not going to learn anything he doesn't know about Abraham in this story. What, what's going to happen here is that God is testing Abraham so that Abraham will know what Abraham would do. That Abraham, Abraham will learn whether or not his faith and trust in the Lord is actually genuine or if he follows God before what he can get from him. And so here's the test. Verse 2, it says this. Take your son, Isaac, you're, you're, he's, take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men, so two of his servants and his son, Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. So a couple of things that's worth noting here. Isaac is somewhere, if you look at, you know, the age of things, of, of what's, what's taken place before this chapter, after this chapter, uh, Isaac is somewhere between the ages of five and 37 years old. So he's somewhere in that age. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big age range. Now, here's the thing. We are told that Isaac is going to, Isaac here carries a large pile of wood up the mountain. And so it can't be that he's so too young. He can't be that young where he wouldn't be able to do it. And what's happening here is he's likely physically stronger than Abraham at this point, as he's the one who carries the heavy supplies. So this, again, we don't know for sure. He could be a teenager, maybe 20s, but he's probably more strong, physically vigorous than his father, Abraham, who is well advanced in age at this point. And so he asked, God asked Abraham to do something to us that is like breathtakingly awful and what, what we might call actually evil. 
And so a couple things to note. Uh, one, we are not told Abraham or even Sarah. It's like we don't even know if he told Sarah about this. We are not told his reaction. God tells him to do something, and he goes and does it. Undoubtedly, he is sickened. He is confused. He is saddened. No doubt he would be utterly distraught. I mean, can you imagine waiting all this time, all these promises, finally having the son named Isaac, and now this God who you followed, you're only here because you were following this God to begin with, now tells you that you have to kill him, right? I mean, this is a horrific thing if you're Abraham. However, despite whatever emotions Abraham might be feeling, the command to sacrifice his son uh, would, be, it would not be as shocking to him as it is to us. So to us, we are repulsed, rightly so, that God would ask someone to literally kill their own child. In the ancient worldview, particularly in the land of Canaan, where Abraham is living in, uh, this was a, a somewhat normal practice. You would have the God whose name was El, who was the, uh, the God of fertility, who was entitled to demand a portion of what was being produced. And so, uh, therefore, a child sacrifice was a thing that many peoples in this region actually did. Now, I'm not saying every family and everyone, everyone in the land of Canaan did this, but it was a normal enough practice that you would not be surprised if your gods or you felt led to sacrifice your child child, it was a thing that people did. Therefore, a child sacrifice, again, many people did it. Sometimes it was done as a way to, uh, to ensure continued fertility, because again, in the ancient world, you want as many kids as possible, or at least that's what they thought. And so if I, if I sacrifice my firstborn, the gods will give me more children in their place. And so to be sure, however saddened or even dumbfounded Abraham might be by this command, it is at least to him culturally logical that God would ask you to do this. This is what other people do in his region. However, what would absolutely be baffling to him is that the covenantal promises that God promised Abraham, he has literally said are going to happen through Isaac. And so how in the world are these promises that God promised through Abraham that you're going to, have to be the father of a great nation that somehow, someway through your offspring, the entire world's going to be blessed. How is this going to happen if your only legal child still with you, Isaac, is going to be killed? Again, remember, we saw this last week, after Abraham loses Ishmael, so he had another son named Ishmael with Hagar, he sends him away, he gives him resources and you know, financial blessing, but he sends him away. He legally kind of deposes of Ishmael and says, I Isaac is the one through whom the covenant is going to continue. So he's the only one he has left. And now apparently he's going to lose Isaac as well. Sarah, of course, certainly cannot have more children at this point. It was a miracle that she even had Isaac and she is even older now. It seems as if all these decades of trusting and walking with God are a waste. If you're Abraham, not just being saddened and sickened about the prospect of your own son dying and you having to be the one to kill him, everything that this God has promised you can't happen. Now, what's interesting, also note this in verse 4. It says, it wasn't until the third day of travel that Abraham arrived at the place of sacrifice. In other words, three days of living with, thinking about, grieving, what is going to happen, and not only what's going to happen, what you are going to make happen. That Abraham, when God tells him to do this, he does not, he's not allowed to get this over with quickly. Right? He has to sit and stew and think about what he is going to do. For three days, he has to live with the haunting prospect of what he's going to do to his son. 
Now, of course, for us, there's a lot of things happening in Genesis 22 that are pointing us to a well-known story later in Scripture. We, from this point on, this is the first time it happens, but from this point on, throughout the New Testament, leading, or the Old Testament, leading to the New Testament, three days is going to turn into a typical period of preparation of something important. So throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, three days is now going to be a typical thing that people would do to prepare for something significant. And of course, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, we know someone else who did something quite significant on the third day. Now, lastly, before we continue, I know there's a lot of information here. It's just worth knowing. Uh, it's debated here, but Mount Moriah, or Moriah where they're going, might very well be the same place where Jerusalem ends up being built. And of course, this is where Jesus himself was crucified as a sacrifice outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Again, as we talk about scripture being a unified story that leads to Jesus, you're going to see this in this text. So God tells Abraham to go sacrifice their son. They travel three days. They get to the mountain. He leaves his servants. Him and Isaac travel up the mountain. And then it says this, verse 7. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father... And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. So if you're Isaac, you realize there is something significant missing for what you're supposed to actually be doing. There is no animal to sacrifice. You're making a three-day trek. You're about to get to the place where you're going to do the sacrifice, and you have nothing to sacrifice. Now, interestingly, twice now, in verse 5, when Abraham tells his traveling party to stay where they are so that him and Isaac can go worship, and then they'll come back. And then now, Abraham speaks as if Isaac will be saved. Because here he says an animal is going to be provided. Now, the question for us is, does Abraham actually believe this? Um, or is he just trying to not give away what Isaac, to Isaac what's going to happen? Or maybe he just really hopes that's what happened, but he's not sure. And so that's what he says. We're not, we don't, he doesn't tell us explicitly. We don't know. Um, perhaps he's might thinking, well, actually, I am going to sacrifice Isaac. But somehow he's going to be saved or somehow he's going to come back to life. Because after all, God said it was going to be through him. We're not told why. But he seems to say, hey, I think he's at least somehow going to come back. Then it says this in verse 9. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham put, built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. What we see here is that Abraham is going to do it. He is going to kill, to slaughter, to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, of course, for us, the biggest question is why? Like, why would he do this? Why is this even happening? You know, why would God, who's supposed to be loving and kind and gracious and full of righteous and good judgment, why would God ask Abraham to do this, right? Not just morally the problems we have with this text, but also like he literally promised Abraham that it's going to go through Isaac. So that kind of seems weird. Like, why would God ask Abraham then to sacrifice the promised heir, right? What's significant, however, about this test about what God is asking Abraham to do here is that if you've been with us, you, we've already seen God, God ask Abraham to do a few different things at different times, to leave the land that he was going to, to go here, to trust the Lord, to do all these things. Yet what's different about this story compared to those is that not only is this the biggest ask God has made of Abraham, but, he, but this, is the only, this is the first time where Abraham actually does not get anything out of being faithful to what God has asked him to do. 
Right? Every other time, God promises things. I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to give you a land. Your offspring is going to take over. You're going to become blessed. All these things. Every time he does something, Abraham does it, God promises, here's going to be your reward if you do it. However, this is the first time where God asks Abraham to do something and then promises him nothing in return. Right? Nothing. In fact, not only does he gain, not gain anything, he only gets deep loss. The loss of losing a son, the loss of losing the promised inheritance or the heir, that what God promised, the covenant's going to end with Isaac. Abraham gets nothing out of this other than loss. If he does this, he loses everything he has given his life to if this happens. Like one biblical scholar puts it this way. It'll be on the screen. He says, the stakes are considerably higher here. Has Abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain or simply by his love for God? Up until this point, one does not know which is true. Maybe Abraham himself does not know for sure. This test allows the patriarch to demonstrate to himself, to Isaac, to the world, but most of all to God, that his faith is not driven by what he will receive out of it, but by his commitment to God. And so the question, the question, maybe the test that is posed to Abraham here is also relevant for us to consider, right? We might ask ourselves this question when we read this text. Are you willing to follow God if there is nothing in it for you? Are you willing to go where he asks you to go? Are you willing to do what he asks you to do if there is no benefit that you can see for you doing it? Right? The test that Abraham has here is that, is it God who, and his blessings that Abraham is following, the benefits that he gets, or is it simply God himself that Abraham is after? Right? This is the test Abraham is facing. What is more important to him, God or what God can give him? Is he willing to go into trust and to do what God asks him to do, even if he has no benefit, but only potential loss for doing it? It reminds me of a story of a man named Desmond Doss, who in the World War II joined the army. He was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and he believed in nonviolence. And so he didn't want to carry a gun, shoot, kill, but he wanted to play a part in helping the allies win the war. And so he enrolls in the army as an army medic. However, what makes him even more unique is that he wouldn't even carry a pistol on him. So most medics would carry, even today, carry a pistol on them for self-defense or if something happens. He wouldn't even do that. In fact, his story is quite... Uh, quite interesting. He was mocked and made fun of the people of his platoon and his rank and his army. I don't, I don't know what these words are, but you know, people that were with him, I don't know. His company, I don't know. But the people, he was actually made fun of him because he was like so like anti-anything, even though these people like the Nazis, they're terrible people. And then one day, he's involved in a very big battle. The platoon, the troop, the people that he's with, they go into this battle on this really big ridge. And he goes, and there's this massive scene. People are dying. He ends up, after the war, getting a purple heart because he, by himself, rescued, it's estimated, about 75 men on this place called the Hacksaw Ridge. You might be familiar with this story if you've seen this movie. These, these men are being shot. They're dying. And so he's bringing them to the, to the, to the edge of the ridge so that they can be lowered down. And the, he goes back to rescue these people. He doesn't kill anybody. He has no gun on him. I was watching some interviews of the people, you know, before they died a couple of decades ago, people who were like in his platoon or were in his company. And they were talking about how like they made fun of him before the war. And now this guy without a gun, without a pistol, without anything is the one that saved all of their lives. And they're crying and they can't believe who he's done. This is what this man in this story, Desmond Doss, gives up everything for nothing. And the question for us is that when it comes to God, what are we doing? 
Are we willing to do things if only we can get something from him or willing to say we actually trust God enough to follow him even if we can see no discernible benefit for ourselves if we do so? Are you willing to follow God if there is nothing in it for you? That's what Abraham is doing here. So it says this in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thickets by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided, by, provided on the Lord's mountain. So what happens here is Abraham's going to do it. He goes through it. He gets as close as he can to actually sacrificing his son. God stops him when it's clear that Abraham is going to pass the test. That he actually will do anything this God asks of him, even if it is of no benefit, but actually even major detriment to himself. That he is willing to do it. That Abraham is willing to give up the most important thing to him. Isaac and everything that comes with him and having an only son. Remember, Ishmael has already been sent away. It is all on Isaac's shoulders if this covenant is going to continue. And so again, this could very well be the same mountain or at least the same area, the same region where the temple of Jerusalem ends up being built on Mount Moriah, where of course, another substitutionary sacrifice also is going to take place a few centuries later. Now, I do want to point this out, uh, if you're likely thinking in our modern context, uh, why would Yahweh, why would this God of Israel, if he's not like the other people that the ancient other people followed, why would he ask Abraham to do something that other people would do, these other foreign gods, these evil gods, these people that do awful things? Uh, why would God ask him to do that? Should we not be like, I'm not so sure about this God? Um, I would say a couple of things. Uh, one, this is a, a description of what happened. This is not like a test that Scripture says he's going to ask other people to do. Um, it's also worth noting that child sacrifice is actually explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. We see this in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So sometime after this is actually explicitly com uh, uh, commanded not to do so. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God on the mountain, number six, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Like it's literally told you should not in cold blood go out and do something like like this. And it appears that somehow, some way that Abraham actually expected God to rescue Isaac. Like, in fact, it says this in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's kind of like the hall of fame of, of faith. It talks about all these people in the Old Testament who trusted God, even if they didn't see the reward here on earth. It says this about Abraham, but by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet as he was offering his one and only son, the one whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, he considered God to be, even, to, to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. In other words, the author of Hebrews seems to point out that Abraham seemed to genuinely believe that somehow, some way, Isaac was going to come back from the dead. That somehow, some way, God was going to redeem Isaac. But I want to say this, that just because he believed God would do it, it doesn't mean he knew for sure God would do it. 
right? Just because you trust God to do something, it doesn't mean you actually know what's going to happen. He still has to have faith that this God who has given up everything to follow is going to follow through and somehow take this horrific ask and turn it into something good. And while he didn't actually end up killing Isaac, again, in his mind, he was essentially as good as dead because he was about to before God intervened. And then he provided a substitutionary sacrifice in Isaac's place. In other words, even though things turned out the way that Abraham was believing and hoping and trusting they would, he still had to have faith that God would do it. Or one of the things that we see happening in this story that's a reminder to us is that faith requires trust. Faith in God requires trusting that God will do what he has promised to do, right? All of us, right? We want, we want to be wise, right? We want good counsel. We want to pray. We want to seek God if we're facing a difficult decision or we're trying to figure out what to do. But in the end, at the end of the day, no matter how much prayer, no matter how many people you've talked to, no matter what you want, think you should do, you have to, end of the day, do something, right? You have to, end of the day, move, even when you are not sure how it is going to play out. Faith requires trusting that even if it doesn't go out the way that you want, it was still worth it. It was still what God asked you to do. And in the end, it will all be redeemed. Like if I can be completely honest with you, this is where uh, Christina and I are right now. We have two kids, eight and five. A couple of weeks ago, we finished uh, the license, uh, be, became foster parents. We finished the licensing. And Tuesday of this week, we are getting our first placement, a four-year-old boy named Nehemiah. Now, we have no idea how this is going to go, and we're praying, and we're hoping that, that he feels welcome and secure. Many of you guys will be able to meet him. He'll be here running around next Sunday, you know, hoping that he, he bonds with our kids well, all these things. And listen, we have no idea what's going to happen, absolutely none, but we are having faith that this is what God has called us to do. We are trusting, whether it turns out the way we want to or not, that it is for God, our good and God's glory. Faith requires trust. It's a process that we must take steps. We have, we have no guarantees that this is going to be good for us or for even good for Nehemiah or good for our kids. We are trusting the Lord with what we believe he has called us to do. So the question is for you, what is he asking you to do? And it's not a comparison game. It's not saying you got to, you know, give all your money away and move to another country. But just right now, maybe this week, what is one area that you can trust God in and take faith to walk in that trust? That's a question for us as we read this text. For Abraham, God provides a sacrifice for I or a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. He gives him a ram. And then it says this in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, verse 18, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. So what happens here is God's covenantal promises, again, actually become even grander after Abraham's faithful uh, trust in him in this story. Not only will Abraham's offspring be numerous, which he's already been told, but his offspring will possess the land by defeating their enemies. And of course, this would be an encouragement because the first five books of the Old Testament begin to be composed and put together. When the Israelites are traveling back into the promised land, they're hearing these promises that God will drive out these, his, his enemies, these evil, wicked people who do things like child sacrifice and sexual violence that we read about with Sodom and Gomorrah a few weeks ago. 
that all of these people, all the world will somehow, some way be blessed through his offspring. But this is the first time in all of the years that Abraham has followed God, that God says this will be so because you have obeyed. At this point, he's always said it's going to happen. Now he explicitly links it to Abraham's obedience. Right, so far, God has promised all these things to Abraham, motivated purely out of God's grace with no indication or of conditions or that God's favor towards Abraham was somehow earned by Abraham. It has been by grace that, Abraham, that God called Abraham and decided to bless him. And so the statement here does not suggest that the promises are conditional on future obedience of Abraham or the future obedience of his descendants. God said, this is going to happen. All of the world is going to be blessed through you. And, but here, it does identify Abraham's obedience as having served as a catalyst for this advance, for this to actually happen. But in this story, Abraham passed the test. He trusted in the abundance of God that God will provide what was needed. What this story shows us, what the scriptures are all pointing to, is that the gift of salvation comes through a substitute. That was what the story is pointing to. Check this out, if you will, with me. Um, think about it this way. Who else is described as the only son, as Isaac is in verse 1 of chapter 22, whom is loved, as it says in verse 1, who is going to be given up as an offering? Who arrived in the place where he would die saddled on a donkey, as it says here in verse 3? Verse three. Who did something significant themselves after three days? Who is a lamb that was also offered as a sacrifice or as a substitute, right? Also in this story, what's significant is that we are told Isaac says nothing. We are getting no indication of what he thought or what he did. In this story, Isaac offers no protest, nor does he speak, and he carries the wood for the sacrifice. At this point, the only way this sacrifice can happen is if Isaac lets his dad do it, because he is physically stronger than him. And so we might ask ourselves, who else is it said of that they did not open their own mouth in defense of themselves and also carried the wood that they would be sacrificed on to the place of their sacrifice? Just as Isaac, again, willingly lays himself on the altar, it's extremely unlikely that Abraham could have wrestled him down, tied him up, and done all this on his own. The New Testament also tells us that someone else sacrificially and obediently submits to the Father's will. Abraham is told he did not withhold his only son, in verse 12. But we know, we know that someone actually did give up their only son. And in response to all of this, God strengthens his covenant with Abraham and his promise that all the nations would be blessed through him. And of course, in the Passover meal, there is someone else who demonstrated that everything finds its fulfillment in him. What God did in Exodus all the way up until this point at the Passover meal, this man who's leading his disciples in this meal said, it's all been pointing to me. He says, the new covenant has come. And of course, lest we forget, both Isaac and this other person had miraculous births, right? This is for us what God did in Jesus. I love how the, the late Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. 
And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his seat up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God is not withholding his love from you. So, so often we think I've got to earn it. I've got to do these things. I've got to give more money. I've got to make sure I'm at church. All these things are helpful. It can help us grow in a relationship with Jesus. I've got to do X, Y, and Z, and then God will love me. What this story is showing us is it's not about you. This whole time, it's never been about you. It's been about God's love and grace and his substitutionary sacrifice. He is the only one who lived a perfect life, who died the death that we deserve, who defeated death three days later to show us that he has the power over sin and darkness, that Jesus is the only one that could actually measure up and actually be a sacrifice for us. The good news of God, of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. And that's how we experience the grace and the goodness of God. Romans 8, 32, the apostle Paul says this, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? With him, not you trying really hard, not you promise, I'm going to look at porn again, I'm going to stop cussing, I'm going to hang out with the right, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. No, not him. It's not you. It's Jesus. It's through Jesus that God promises salvation and grace and hope and love and acceptance into his kingdom. The well-known hymn writer Isaac Watts put it this way, so strange, so boundless was the love which pitied dying men. The father sent his equal son to give them life again. God has provided the substitute for those who repent and believe. Again, the gift of salvation comes through a substitute. So, so listen, I, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your week's been like, what your year's been like, what your life has been like. But Jesus is saying, you are welcomed into my kingdom, not because you figured everything out and you're going to be a better person. You're welcomed into my kingdom because you could never figure it all out. You could never be good enough, but I have done it for you. That you and I, in the midst of our sin and our shame and our doubts and our confusion and our falling short, are accepted and loved by God, not by what we have done or what we promise to do in the future, but by what Jesus has done in the past. That he took our sin and our shame with joy and gladness. He laid it all on the line so you and I could experience the grace and mercy of God. And so listen, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you just need to know what God is asking you to do today is to repent and trust and believe not to behave better. That's not what he's asking you to do. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, what God is asking you to do is not behave better first and foremost. He's asking you to repent, to trust and believe that what he has done is sufficient for you. And as we honor him and strive to love him and love others in our lives, it's not because we're trying to get God to love us, but it's out of the knowing that God already has given us everything, that we honor God and love people in response to what God has given us, not to try to get something from him. The gift of salvation comes through a substitute, and his name is not your good efforts. His name is Jesus.